Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. How you doing today, my good friends? Thank you again for stopping by here today. Back in 1865, just after the Civil War and the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, the country was left in one heck of a mess. Entire cities were burned along with farmers' homes and fields. People were starving all over the South, left without jobs nor any income whatsoever and very little hope that the situation was going to get much better anytime soon. The Union and Confederate armies held many POWs from the war, and by mid-April, just after the surrender of General Robert E. Lee, both sides had agreed to free the prisoners. What happened next has been talked about since, but has become somewhat lost in the pages of history because of several happenings that came together at nearly the same time. Come on in, set a spell, and let me tell you about it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, by late April of 1865, there were more than 2,000 tired, sick, and injured men all decked out in dirty and worn-out clothes as they marched from Vicksburg, Mississippi, to catch a steamboat that was to be waiting for them at the docks on the Mississippi River. The city of Vicksburg was one of the cities that was completely ravaged by war, and so were the men who were making their way to the steamboat. Almost all the men were Union soldiers and 
had been lucky enough to survive the battles of an awful war, let alone be taken prisoner by the Confederate troops and sent to prison camps in Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi to try to survive. Most of the soldiers were young. Some were only 14 years old. Young boys were allowed to enlist, but most often they assigned those youngins to as musicians, and that was with their parents' permission. Others lied about their age and signed up as full-blown battle-ready soldiers for a cause they probably didn't fully understand, but all their folks believed in. Many of these soldiers had already been injured in battle by the time they got to the prison camps, and their situation didn't get any better once they got there. The Confederate prison camps were dirty, disease-ridden places and where food was scant at best and medicines, well, they were pretty much non-existent. This wasn't true of the, just the Confederate camps either. Both sides probably struggled to properly take care of their POWs. But life in the Southern camps got a whole heck of a lot worse, especially toward the end of the war when the Confederates faced a Union ship blockade and it was having trouble caring for their soldiers and citizens, let alone their POWs too. Thousands of men and young boys died in prison camps of starvation and disease. At the Alabama Camp Cahaba, the Alabama River flooded, causing the prisoners to have to stand in waist-deep water for a week, right out in the middle of wintertime. Things were even worse at Camp Anderson in Georgia, which resulted in one of the only two war kind trials to come out of the war when Captain Henry Worth was tried and executed for the atrocities committed in Anderson so we can all imagine how bad things must have been. But by the spring of 1865, the war was finally over, and both armies agreed that it was time to let the prisoners go home. This was the best news the prisoners could have possibly heard. Soon enough, they'd be back home with their loved ones, plenty of food to eat, and a good bed to sleep in. It was everything they'd been hoping for since the day they got to the prison camp. Prisoners were soon released, even though they had a hard time making their way to Vicksburg, where steamboats were to be taken, take them home once they got aboard them. By steaming north from Vicksburg up the Mississippi River, the boats would get to the Missouri and Ohio and Tennessee rivers, and from there they'd head to the towns to drop off the weakened soldiers. To get to the Mississippi River at Vicksburg, the prisoners had to travel by boat by train and eventually on foot. They were so weak from the war and prison time that some of them actually died along the way. Then to make matters worse, some of the trains derailed because the tracks had been damaged by war, which dragged the whole trip out even further. Despite the best efforts of the railroad companies and the, the river was the best way to travel, especially now that the tracks were blown to bits in a lot of places rivers back then were a whole lot like the interstate highways are today. Now after the prisoners got to Jackson, Mississippi, they had to walk the rest of the way to Vicksburg, which was about 50 miles on the only road that led to the city. Most of the men didn't have shoes on their feet, and their feet were bleeding by the time they got to the Big Black River, just east of Vicksburg. They were also extremely hungry because the Confederates still didn't really have much of anything to feed them with. The Big Black River 
marked the dividing line between the part of Mississippi held by the Union Army at Vicksburg and the part held by the Confederate Army close to Jackson. Now, it's true that the fighting had stopped, but as always, with war, neither side just laid down weapons and forgot about it all right off the bat. So, it wasn't until the prisoners got to the area held by the Union Army that they were really and truly free. After crossing the Big Black River, they were given clean clothes and food at Camp Fisk, which was a neutral holding pen for prisoners of war, while arrangements were being made to transport them back home. They stayed at the camps outside Vicksburg and without tents or even blankets during that time, and again, many of them got sick just waiting on a steamship to show up. Now, where were the steamships? I know, I'm wondering the same thing at this point. Well, there was no shortage of those looking to cash in at the end of the war, which left the owners of boats competing to see who could arrange for the most freed prisoners on their boats. The steamboat companies were getting as much as $10 a person to transport soldiers and freed prisoners, which was a lot of money back in 1865. That's about $176 in today's money. And to top that off, some of the money a company employees bribed Army officials at Vicksburg to make sure that they got as many passengers as they possibly could aboard their boat. So, it wasn't that the boats weren't there, it was that the right boats weren't there, if you know what I mean. The Sultana was one of the right boats. She was 260 feet long and 42 feet wide at her widest point, and was designed to carry about 375 or so passenger and crew, which was pretty nice for 1865. She already had about 180 private passengers and crew on board when she pulled in the dock at Vicksburg. By the time the green light was given to board the Sultana, more than 2,000 prisoners and Union Army guards, a few Confederate soldiers, and members of the U.S. Sanitary Commission climbed up on, on the boat. The Sultana left Vicksburg with about 2,400 people on board, more than six times her capacity. As you might guess, there was standing room only. Many of the freed prisoners were so sick or badly injured they had to be carried aboard. Still, the men were just tickled to be heading home. Things are about to get real ugly. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. I know, you're just like I am. You're wondering why in the world a captain of a ship would overload the ship for that much. Captain Cass Mason of the Sultana was in a little bit of financial trouble. He had owned a stake in the Sultana from the first time she was launched in 1863 until just about a year before he picked up the prisoners. He'd sold his shares and to some of his crew, and now he regretted it. He had reached a little deal with the quartermaster in charge of the Win 2s and the YFs of the port there in Vicksburg, one Captain Reuben Hatch. Now, Captain Hatch worked out a deal that could net himself a little over a dollar a person for every person that Captain Mason could cram on his boat. Besides, the first run down to, to New Orleans had went off without a hitch when Captain Mason made the trip and went under the same deal with uh, about 1,400 passengers crammed up on the Sultana, and it was just a few days before he got back to Vicksburg to pick these folks up. So I guess if 1400 was good, he figured 2400 was even better. 
There was one little thing that came up while the Sultana headed back to Vicksburg from New Orleans. One of her boilers sprung a leak. Captain Mason was told by the mechanic at Vicksburg that a seam needed to be cut out of the boiler and replaced. That repair would take a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks would ruin the captain's sweet deal, so he told the mechanic to patch it and promised to get it fixed after this run. So the mechanic did as he was told. The overcrowded Sultana pulled out of Vicksburg and headed upriver toward Memphis, Tennessee. Because the snow had melted up north, the river was flooded and the boat struggled against the currents as it's, with its heavy load and squeaky boiler. I can't imagine how in the world the boat made any progress at all, because I've stood and watched the modern-day barges go upstream on a flooded Ohio River and barely make any progress at all. In Memphis, the Sultana docked, and some of the men, at least the ones who could, I guess, got off and did the night on the town. They made it back and reboarded the boat, and the Sultana headed upriver again. Around 2 o'clock in the morning, while most of the men were sleeping, the worst thing that could happen did happen. The Sultana exploded and caught fire about 7 miles upriver from Memphis. Right off the bat, and like folks tend to do, some folks thought that the, the Sultana had been sabotaged by Confederate soldiers, but the United States government thought differently. They said that the boilers had held a, the hot water from the steam engines and then had exploded due to a faulty design and the heavy load of its human cargo. A steam engine works when fires are built, which heat enclosed chambers of water to the point that it turns to steam and the pressure of the steam pushes the big pistons that drive the water wheels. That, that, that in turn pushes the boat. And it kind of works just about exactly the same as a steam locomotive does. A leak in the tubes that carried the steam caused the explosion of the Sultana's boilers, which destroyed the nearby parts of the boat and sent hot water and burning embers into and completely through some of the sleeping passengers. Some were killed instantly, while others woke up to find themselves flying through the air and didn't have a clue as to what happened or why they was flying through the air. One minute they were sleeping, the next they woke up in the cold waters of the Mississippi River. Some passengers burned to death on the boat. The lucky ones managed to cling to debris in the river, or to horses and mules that escaped the boat, hoping that they could make it to shore, which they couldn't even see because it was pitch black dark outside, and the flooded river was almost five miles wide where they were. Yeah, they had horses and mules on there along with 2,400 people. Union troops who witnessed disaster from the banks of the Mississippi rushed to aid their former enemy. They could do very little as the mighty Mississippi ran wild at flood stage. And it was dark, of course. A sad day dawned the next morning as it was found that the 2,400 people on board, uh, over 1,700 perished. Many figures today put that number more like 1,800. To this day, the Sultana remains the worst maritime disaster in American history. More people died on the Sultana than aboard Titanic. There's reasons that you may not have heard about Sultana disaster. The Civil War had just ended, President Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated, and the day before the Sultana disaster, President Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth, had been killed. 
There was also the fact that the American public had grown tone deaf to hearing about loss of life in great numbers because of the battles of the war. A steamboat disaster, well, it just didn't quite measure up to the big news. The Sultana disaster is rarely even mentioned in history books for some reason. Most of the survivors survived by floating on pieces of the boat until they made it to shore and could be rescued. One man survived by floating almost 10 miles on the river on the back of a dead mule. One survivor recalled that there was at least a, one person clinging to every tree along the flooded banks of the river. All of them were very cold to say the least, and some even sang songs to try to keep their mind off of the possibility that they were literally knocking on heaven's door. Other survivors mimicked the sounds of birds or frogs to get it all off their mind. Word of the disaster reached Memphis when a passenger who was a teenage boy floated up on the waterfront in a piece of the Sultana and told the troops what happened. In the early morning hours of that morning, as word of the disaster spread, numerous boats from Memphis pulled out and began to assist in the rescue, and the survivors were sent to hospital in Memphis. Many of the poor folks were completely naked by the time that they were rescued, having to remove their clothes to make it easier to swim and or had them tore off by the current of the Mississippi River. Once back in Mississippi, they were given red long johns, which some of them wore as they wandered stunned about the streets of Memphis. We've all seen or maybe even had a pair of these nice warm long johns, I'm sure. I did. Once they were all healed enough, The survivors were put on other boats and sent north where they finally made it home. The Sultana, well, they just left her where she sunk. Despite everything that we now know, there was never anybody held accountable for the worst disaster or the maritime disaster in American history. That happened today, April 27th. That's the reason I went ahead and released this one today. Well, if you enjoyed our story today, Please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow. If you like even more episodes of all three podcasts, World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend, Deviant Report, and Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month to get extra episodes of all three of the podcasts. Just go to anchor.fm or even over at Spotify and search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend where you can find out more and see the extra episodes that we have there. Please join us on Facebook group or Twitter now at Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend, and I will see you then.